I'm sorry, Sarah, but I don't want my grandma in your little handbag sweatshop being pressured by its nursing home to produce your bags. I'm just sorry. Absolutely not. I so don't want Jory on my bad side. This is something I'm learning <laughs> so, about Jory. Yeah, seriously, right? <laughs> I am just so against this business. It just, just makes no sense to me. And welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hi, everyone. And John. How's it going? Nostalgia. Is there anything that sells products more than nostalgia? Don't answer that, John. It was rhetorical. Today, we've got three products that will take you back in time, from road trips with the family to homemade gifts from grandma. But first... I'll take you back in time. Before there were streaming services and premium packages, all with an ad. You're welcome. There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey, but there is the all new service hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead. And give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. So first in the tank, we have audio. And audio comes to us from founder Woody, who is seeking $1 million for 5% of his company. Whoa. So we are walking out of the gate mm. with a $20 million valuation, which is bold. Great episode to start with. So Woody's product is audio, a mobile personal tour guide. So let me walk you through this. The problem that Woody and his product is trying to solve is that, you know, when you're on road trips and you're driving through a town and you have a lot of questions about where you're traveling through, what that landmark is, why was that building so cool? And wouldn't it just be nice to have a personal tour guide answer all of those questions for you? Well, now we have Audio, which is a mobile audio entertainment app that uses geolocation to trigger location-based stories that tell you all that local information and things about the local landmarks that you might otherwise not know. You know, when you're on a road trip and your dad just pounds you with useless information and just bores the heck out of you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As all yes. dads do on road trips. Well, now you could have more of that through an app, but instead of your dad, it could be Morgan Freeman. Everything is better with Morgan Freeman, though. So you went from not selling me on it to like amazingly selling it. I'm selling <laughs> yeah. it. I like this app. I like this idea. I think it's actually a really great idea, and I think it's executed extremely well. Mm -hmm. So I, right from the gate, was very excited to hear the negotiations play out here. I mean, he is asking for a big investment. A million dollars is a lot on the shark tank for and especially 5%. for only five percent mm -hmm. but i think he was justified in asking for it i think it's pretty cool i think he's got a good product no not justified in asking totally justified. for it <laughs> no. pray tell Let's, why not <laughs> well the 20 million is just so difficult for me to wrap my brain around because it's just a standalone product now if he was coming in saying i offer a suite of audio offerings for things from storybooks to like story time to like tours or like lore guides as you're driving through on road trips, I think I would be more inclined to give that much for that valuation. But as someone who enjoys road trips, 
here's the problem with it. The GPS tracking, I think it's just so finicky to focus on because like what if there are some areas where you don't have that turned on? Do you really want your location data to be passed back in the same way that we have things like Google Maps or Waze or Apple Maps just for like storybook telling on the road? Yeah. I think the concept's there. Execution's off. So I am out. Ariel. So you think it's a data privacy issue? People don't care about this sort of data privacy stuff. Apple has invented this data privacy thing in a way Mm. so that they could cut out all the ad networks so they could make all the money on the ad networks. They basically said, oh, don't let these people track your data so they can't serve you ads. And everyone shut it all off because they made privacy a big deal. And then they went around and launched an ad network. I don't think the average person actually cares if their location data is shared with the apps that they use. Just my take. Fair. The other part of it, too, John, that you hit on is the ad network piece. And I think that was missing for me, too. There's not really any opportunity in this model to monetize and to actually make it scalable. Now, this is a good discussion. Yeah. This is a really good discussion to have. So let's dig into how this business actually works. Mm-hmm. You get five free stories. Then after you've used these five free stories, you have unlimited stories for $36 a year. It's basically like a couple of ways you can monetize your app or your web property. One way we are most familiar with is advertising, Mm -hmm. right? To get paid on advertising as an app, you need to have a really big audience with really high usage. Like that is actually the key to an advertising business model. You need to have lots and lots of people who want to use your app and they need to use it a lot because the more you serve ads on your app, the more money you make. So if you want to make a lot of money, you need lots of people to use it. There's another way that you can monetize your app. And that would be more of a subscription model, like a Netflix, for instance, right? And for that, you need a big audience and you need high perceived usage. You need people to believe like, I should subscribe to something that's going to bill me every month because I'll probably watch television shows every month. And then there's kind of a third model, which is more of like an app payments model. In that model, somebody would say, let's hit a paywall and they would just pay an app basically to get access to more stories. And I think that sort of model works better when you have a smaller audience with lower perceived usage, because in that moment you can charge more for it because there's an immediate value exchange for paying for that thing right there. And so like through those three business models, I don't think this app is going to be an advertising app because I just don't think they can get a big enough audience and high enough usage. Hmm. I think the subscription might be tough because I think a lot of people would be like, I don't want to sign up to get billed monthly for this like road trip app which is why I think the design of their monetization, which is like, hey, you get a couple free stories and then we're going to bill you for like the full price of what it costs to get this app, which is like 36 bucks. I was actually happy he didn't come in and say, I've got an advertising business model because it'd be like, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work. Same with subscription. So I thought the payments business model was brilliant. I love it. I think that's where I'm going to invest. I'm just not convinced that people are going to be willing to pay for a subscription service to listen to stories. Like you look at Spotify or like Pandora or Google Music, people are willing to pay those subscriptions, which include like poetry. It includes like podcasts, music, like it has more of an offering. I see this more as a feature to be acquired by either another business or company, but not as a standalone on its own. I just don't think it's strong enough to survive in the market. And I think that's what Rob was starting to get into as why he was just not a fan of the product. He was like, it's hard to visualize this as a business when it feels like a feature. 
Yeah, that is going to be the biggest challenge for them. Any app like this solely depends on their ability to acquire people and convert those people into paying customers and then retain them. He had a retention stat. He basically said, hey, look, we lose about 50% of the customers that we acquire. Which is a lot. So that's definitely a risk. Is it a lot? I was really curious about when he threw out 50%, but then immediately was like, oh, but that's fine. Talk to me about that 50% attrition rate. Is that okay to have as an app? That doesn't feel awful to me, honestly, for something like this. But with a customer acquisition cost of $38, granted the founder was like, oh, but we've recently gone it down to like $10. It just feels like really risky to start losing half your audience. You can't defy the reality of the way that people use products. Sure. I think the key here is that he needs to get in front of the most relevant audiences for this thing. AAA is an investor. Like, oh my gosh, people still rely on AAA to plan trips for them. Hmm. This is an immediate distribution model for it. It's true his customer acquisition cost was in the high 30s. It's not uncommon to start out with paid advertising and for your CAC to be really high, and then you optimize it and it learns and it comes way down. And so- I'm not super worried about it. He's got it down under $10 for a CAC here. And so to me, I think the biggest question for him is like, can he continue to get distribution on a lower CAC? And can he figure out the perfect price point to charge people that will maximize the number of people that continue to complete the transaction, but has the highest price possible since his churn rate is 50%. The other thing that I wish he went into, and I think Lori kind of asked like, hey, how often do the notifications pop up from like a user experience perspective? Because you don't want to get pinged every five minutes. You're like driving through New York as opposed to you're driving through, you know, Oklahoma and you only hear a story once every like, you know, 30 minutes if you're lucky. Oklahoma's (laughs) got stories to tell, Ariel. You're being coastal elitist over here, assuming Oklahoma has no stories to tell. I drive through Oklahoma at four in the morning to get to the airport because it was cheaper. It's rough. I bet there's amazing (laughs) stories to tell. (laughs) One thing I like about this as a concept is that I too, Ariel, go on road trips. I have a family now. You know what kind of stinks is when the person riding shotgun, you like see something and you want them to like look something up. You're like, oh, what's that over there? And they're like, go look it up. And then it's, they're gone for like 20 minutes in their phone because now they're on like Instagram, they're scrolling, they're ripping through TikTok. I think one thing that's kind (laughs) of nice about this is that what people say, ripping through TikTok? No. They do now. They, do now. <laughs> they don't. They never will. Ariel, what are you doing this weekend? You're scrolling. You're ripping, ripping through TikTok. Ripping through TikTok. <laughs> I think one thing that's cool about this is it keeps your whole family present. Hmm. When people do go on road trips with their family, I think there's an aspiration that it is going to be like something that is a shared experience. And I think hmm. increasingly what happens on road trips is that kids sit in the back and watch television on their devices. Person sitting in shotgun essentially rips through TikTok and the driver sits lonely and sad. <laughs> And I think this is something that brings the whole family together and makes people be present. And I think that's kind of cool. But I have to ask, before you like totally ripped into Oklahoma, (laughs) so we all live in very different locations in the U.S. So I have to ask, if I was driving through where all y'all are located, what would be the fun story to bring the driver together with their family in your locations? You have to tell it to us in Ken Burns style, though. Bust (laughs) an accent or bust. Okay. In like 1916 or something like that, in the north end of Boston, there was a huge molasses tank. And the molasses tank exploded and flooded the city streets with feet of molasses. And there was a great molasses flood in the north end of Boston. This is a true story. It's true. Some people died. It was very sad. But also, there was a lot of molasses to swim in, and it was delicious, so that was kind of fun. And they say that today, on hot days in the north end of Boston, you can still smell molasses. Ew. Mm -hmm. How much would you pay for that story, Ariel. You know, I think it'd be one of my five free ones. 
<laughs> wow, she freemium you. All right, give me North Kakalaki. Give me the North Kakalaki story. Well, fun fact that a lot of people don't know. As you drive through the roads of North Carolina, you'll see two different options for your license plate. One that says trust in God and the other says first in flight because the Wright brothers first had their flight off of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, which is right along the beautiful eastern coast of the state. I would pay for that. I pay for These that. These are two that like, different ASMR experiences, and I love that. <laughs> Ariel dropping premium stories on us. All right, Jory, give us some South Carolina lore. So, if you are driving down the main avenue of Greenville, South Carolina, you may look down and see mice. Now, these aren't just normal mice. These are nine spectacular bronze little statues hidden throughout Greenville's main avenue. And you have to look for them, right? Like they're hidden in corners. They're like behind little lampposts. And the entire premise is that one day a dreaming big senior was like, wouldn't it be fun if our city had a citywide scavenger hunt? And a local artist said, bet, let's make that happen. And made these statues and installed it. They're like permanent installations and you can find the mice on Main and there are nine of them. And it is actually really fun to do. So if you have a weekend away in Greenville, South Carolina. That is one way I recommend you spend your afternoon. See, this is the active kind of lore that I think would be well for this product. If there was some kind of game element, I just think it could be great for hikes or if you're going through parks. It's just not the driving setting. Maybe that's the most difficult Mm. part for me to move past. Wasn't the only thing difficult to move past because actually, for all that, this sounds fun and playful to us. Not every shark was so impressed. So it was really only Kevin that seemed to be like seeing the long-term vision of this tourism app. And we had a bit of an interesting situation where initially Kevin was like, yep, 15% and I will assume the risk. But we had a bit of a... uh, uh, negotiation battle where the founder, again, we had a situation was like came in with a particular number in his head. But I don't think I've ever seen a founder be so set on keeping it so low and just like being absolutely inflexible because we all know, you know, you come in with 5%, you're probably trying to give away less than 30%. But really, this owner was like, I can maybe meet you at 6.5 as a compromise, but no higher. And it was just like, oh, Have you watched the show before? Unfortunately, no deal was made. Anytime we see a tech company come on Shark Tank, you're like, ooh, I bet the economics are going to be really tough to pull off with the way the sharks do this thing. You know, it kind of stinks for the founder because Mr. Wonderful wanted to do the deal, but for him to do it at a value that Mr. Wonderful would accept basically would have meant that all of his previous investors are either like screwed over because their shares are worth way less now, or he would have to give a bunch more shares away to his previous investors to kind of make them whole. They call that a down round. And you don't really want to take a down round unless you really need to. Although like right now in the world of tech, by the way, there's a lot of down rounds happening. It's pretty common. Oh, I can imagine. it used to kind of be viewed during the free money period as like a black mark on a company or whatever. And increasingly it's like, no, it's pretty common now. Companies are taking down rounds because they don't really have a choice because valuations were so overinflated during the stimulus period. That makes sense. Now, this was relatively a new episode, so it aired in November 2022. And even though there was no deal, the company did experience an influx of new subscribers. So it got that clout, even if it didn't get that deal. And since airing on Shark Tank, they have been featured in Forbes, The New York Times, Outside, and TechCrunch. So very much still a company, very much still building steam and, you know, featuring local stories to an app near you. 
Yeah, maybe I'll eat my words and next time I'm driving through Oklahoma, I will have the most robust guide available. You should narrate the stories going through Oklahoma. You're passing <laughs> Tulsa, Oklahoma, the home of where people eat their words. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> So next in the tank, we have Acton. And Acton is coming to us from founder Peter, who is also asking for a million dollars. But this time, our founder is asking for 3.5%, which I think today (laughs) is the lowest we've seen asked for. That is approximately a $43 million valuation. Absurd. Massive. And, you know, it's interesting because we're given this company Acton, but actually the product that they're positioning is Rocket Skate. So it's like motorized hoverboards for your feet, like segways for your feet. Yeah, they're segways for your feet. Yeah, they look like little They're stints. not hoverboards. Hoverboards yeah. would be. Yeah, segways for your feet. Segways for your feet. Okay, so they run up to 10 miles an hour, go as far as 10 miles in a single charge, and thankfully like communicate wirelessly to maintain the same speed. And like I hadn't even considered the implications of that until the owner was like, don't worry, they definitely go at the same speed. And I was like, new fear unlocked. Yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so thinking about Rocket Skates, Acton, and our ambitious founder, what are our initial thoughts? My whole goal is to be a rational economic actor in almost every case. Okay. I heard the term rocket skates and that all went out the window. I don't care that he wants $43 million valuation. I am in. The future is here, everybody. Get yourself some rocket skates. And blast off. Is it here, John? So these bad boys retail for $500, $600, and $700. Definitely not your day-to-day purchase. Is this something, John, that you're trying to get for commuting into work? What is your use case here? My use case is so my neighbors will truly and finally consider me the coolest guy in the neighborhood. Yes, right. (laughs) I'm a walker. I like to walk. I walk to the grocery store. I walk to get dinner. I walk to all sorts of other places, and I could imagine rolling instead of walking. (laughs) Okay. So you don't walk for the health benefits. You walk to transport yourself. Both. And you want to automate that. (laughs) I want to look good. I want to rocket skate. I want to blast off. I don't know. Okay. I was very much into when electric scooters came out. Mm -hmm. So like I understand having like transportation, whether that's like the longboarding or even I had friends that did like unicycles that were motorized and would ride them. Rocket skates are cooler than unicycles. And I think, yes. No. Yes. So I work in adult education, right? That is what I do in my day to day. Mm -hmm. I make it so that people understand how to use a product really well. Go off, Jory. And so here's the thing. The first tenet of adult education is you can never assume that a concept is so simple that anyone in your audience can get it. And again, this might be chalked up to an audience issue, right? You could say who we are marketing towards are the adventurous type, which I think the founder starts to get into. But the problem with that is if you're going to make the argument that this is so intuitive, you actually have to be careful about where on the adoption curve, you're falling because, yeah, some things are intuitive if they are entrenched so much in the culture that reasonably you could assume that through socialization, someone could kind of get how to work something. It's like if you just gave someone a bike, but people have seen people ride bikes, right? Rocket shoes is not the same. We are still very much at the early part of the adoption curve. So when you're there, you have to assume that nothing is intuitive to your user. And we see 
see this a little bit actually play out where they roll in and they've clearly been on these before. So it looks easy. And then Rob jumps into them and is like, it's a lot harder than it looks. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it can be pretty dangerous for companies to make assumptions on like a very new type of product, a very new type of transportation. And that felt very exclusionary to just like have as part of your marketing, like, oh, we just target to young people. So there's that. And then on the other side, which we can get into more, is like the idea that once this founder started to try to get into any kind of numbers, the entire presentation fell apart. So not only was he dodging like, how does it work questions? He was also dodging anything concrete about the business. And for those two reasons, I'm out. He was rocket skating around any questions that asked for specifics. (laughs) It felt like he was doing rocket science to dodge some of the questions he was being asked. (laughs) This is the hard thing about this pitch. You were right. It looks actually like there's a real learning curve for this product. The market is probably quite small. The numbers don't come anywhere close to justifying that valuation. So it's totally irrational, but it's rocket skates. And that's why I'm so in on it. I don't know. I can't like get over it. I'm just like, okay. I think it was interesting too that they did touch on the multiple rounds of funding. Mm -hmm. To your point, John, they're coming and asking for like a 40 million valuation. At what point is it a red flag? If you have too many cooks in the kitchen. The truth is, I think it can be absolutely fine to take money from lots and lots of people as a business. But I think the downside of that is you don't end up having any investors who are deeply committed to your business. And one of the reasons you take money from investors is not just because you need cash to scale your business, but you need some sort of value that they offer, be it connections, experience, expertise, knowledge, all those things. And so he did $1.5 million in sales last year. He's forecasting $10 million, but a forecast is just made up. You basically have to evaluate on that $1.5 million. I bet the margins are very low because I bet they're actually pretty expensive to make at the scale that he's at right now. And so it's pretty tough to imagine a world where an investor at a $43 million valuation will get any money back. And it wasn't that he was asking for more investment after seed rounds that got me a little concerned. It's that he couldn't remember his valuations from previous seed rounds. The sharks would start to throw out numbers and he'd be like, yeah, Yeah. somewhere around there. But that was for like literally every single number they asked for him to define, right? They were like, what's the cost to make? And he's like, "Eh, you know, maybe around 40%, but I'm on Shark Tank, so I'm not going to tell you. And then how much have you taken an investment? Well, you know, somewhere around there. He could never actually be concrete Mm -hmm. with the numbers. To Lori's point, it's like either you didn't prepare for this presentation and you don't want it enough, or you're kind of not actually paying attention to what's happening at your own business. And that's a different type of red flag. I feel like when I was working more in the startup space, it was not uncommon for startups not to want to reveal too many details about their economics publicly. You don't want to reveal essentially, you know, what sort of multiples a particular investor did. And you want to kind of keep some of that Mm. stuff secret because oftentimes for hyped up startups, an investor will overpay for access to the funding round and they don't want to be made to look like a fool. So you kind of protect some of those details for them. But like, this is a rocket skate company. To invest in a company like that, especially on Shark Tank, you need to know how much these costs to make, whether those costs are going up or going down, how reliable your manufacturing is, what sort of scale you can get to. 
The questions that sharks all asked, which were the right questions, are like, you're forecasting you're going to do $10 million in sales. Do you even have the capacity to actually produce all those skates? And do you have the money to fund producing those skates? Because you probably need like seven to $8 million of capital just to actually like fund the production of those skates. And so he didn't answer those questions. And that was alarming. And if it hadn't been a rocket skate product, I would have been out too. <laughs> So Kevin, once again, was the one that was sort of on board with getting this product up and rolling, if you will. And his whole deal was like he really wanted 15% of the company. And I think why that was is he wanted to have the founder pay the real price for the valuation that he was asking for. Mm. It's rare to hear this tactic of like really paying up to your true valuation being as part of the show. Yeah. But the founder, once again, kind of dug in their heels and was like, you know, it's a big jump from what I'm asking. Asking, which his negotiations were anywhere between like six and eight percent of his company. So ultimately, when Kevin like held the line at 15 percent, once again, we had no deal. Now, Jory, this pitch was eight years ago, and I am yet to see anybody rocket skating through my neighborhood, including myself. So glad you asked, John. So actually, this company is very much around. So no. they've rebranded to Acton Global. And unfortunately for your rocket skates dreams, John, they actually no longer sell electric skates. Oh, no. But they are now focused on selling electric bikes and scooters. Oh, something yeah. you don't have to reinvent how to ride. It looks like they're trying to have charge stations in over 100 cities globally. So Acton is it's very much still around. It's just in a different form. Mm. Well, my dreams are dashed. Oh, you could get a scooter. I don't want a scooter. I mean, that's going to take me from hero to zero. <laughs> exactly. Rocket skates, hero. <laughs> Electric scooters, zero. I can zero. see John with a little superhero cape on his rocket skates. <laughs> Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So last in the tank, we have Sarah Oliver handbags. And this product comes to us from founder Sarah, who is asking for $250,000 for 20% in her business, which is a $1.25 million valuation. And the product that Sarah is selling us is all hand knit, made with love and care in the USA handbags. Now, this business comes with a unique business model. These are Bags specifically made by a group of senior citizens. She calls them her pearlettes, and they are members of Sarah's local retirement community. And this is a huge selling point of Sarah's company because, you know, who better to make her handbags than those with a passion for knitting? And they really posit these pearlettes as the backbone of a business whose passion and nimble fingers really make this company so wonderful. So, you know, pearlettes are a huge selling point and <laughs> honestly seem like the real product here. But each of these bags comes with a custom insert that tells the story of the senior citizen that knitted your handbag. So, Ariel, I'm actually going to turn to you first because this feels like case hook, line, sinker of emotional marketing. And I need you to help me unpack why this does and doesn't work. 
Yeah. So I think the concept in and of itself is very wholesome. It has that altruistic angle of you're helping someone, you're learning more about their story, you're kind of giving back to your community by giving, you know, seniors a sense of purpose into their day to day that they may not have when they live in retirement homes. But the thing is with emotional based marketing, I believe there's a fine line between building your brand on emotion based versus having a certain campaign or iteration Hmm. of like, something they're activating upon for your brand. Because if you focus on building a brand that is solely focused on making you feel good or having that emotional draw and pull strings, like your audience is going to be used to that. And oftentimes people want to, you know, buy products that make them feel good and Mm -hmm. like they're helping as opposed to, oh, this is a bunch of grannies that are making this. They're not even getting any equity or share stake in this business because it felt almost like it was toggling the line between is this a charity or is this a business, which Mm -hmm. the Sharks kind of alluded to. Mm -hmm. Emotional-based marketing is really helpful for building brand loyalty to really engage your audience. But again, it's so tricky when you build an entire brand off of emotion as opposed to a single activation or campaign or theme. Yeah. Given that this company is attempting to differentiate solely on the idea that it relies on essentially like an elderly workforce, which has otherwise Mm -hmm. kind of been abandoned by capitalism or whatever you will, and is looking for purpose in life, like the choice to select that as your workforce and as your means of production, it needs to either mean that you can leverage that story to raise your price, charge much more, or it means that that workforce is undertapped. And so you can basically pay less for it than you would pay other people for it. They said that they pay basically $18 for a handbag. Mm -hmm. And so I would imagine that hand knit handbags, the minimum wage is like 15 bucks an hour. Like let's assume six hours or 10 hours or something. You're talking about $3 or like, or $2 an hour. So like, this is actually a huge cost advantage for her company, potentially for hand knit. And she can charge more because of the willingness to pay. And she does. She charges like 200 and something dollars a handbag. Like this seems like a brilliant freaking idea. But this is why I don't think it is, right? Because just let's play back what you've just said. Their entire emotion-based marketing is that they are helping these people find a purchase at the same time that they are paying these people less than minimum wage. And those two things do not go together. Have you heard of fast fashion? So fast fashion works because they aren't constantly dredging up how the factory conditions and what their workers are facing. Fast fashion is totally produced in sweatshop conditions. These are not sweatshop conditions. But you're undervaluing your workforce at the same time that you're charging $225 a bag. So it's not like you're not making incredible margins off of these, Mm -hmm. right? Like even with materials, I think they said the cost to make was $47. It just seems like you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. Either you're going to value your workforce so much that it is an integral part of your company and the story and why people should buy it, or you're going to pay them fast fashion rates. And I'm sorry, but Sarah Oliver, you can't do both things. And while her soft-spoken voice may have won over the sharks because they focused on granny, they focused on granny and they focused on those inserts. I think if anyone looks at this business a little too long, they're like, you know, that $1.9 million in sales, it's looking a little sus, especially when, two, you have her referring to people as pearlettes. So she's like literally dehumanizing them with this cute little nickname. And then, two, talking about scale and expansion plans, right? So you are now trying to 
bring this to every retirement community. I'm sorry, Sarah, but I don't want my grandma in your little handbag sweatshop being pressured by its nursing home to produce your bags. I'm just sorry. Absolutely not. I so don't want Jory on my bad side. This is something I'm learning <laughs> so, about. Yeah, seriously, right? <laughs> I am just so against this business. It just, just makes no sense to me. But the only issue is the manufacturing model. Pay them their worth, though. Just because right. they're elderly and they like to knit doesn't mean that you don't pay them at least minimum wage. So she could do that. Sure. Yeah, I don't think she could afford to pay them minimum because wage. Because think about how she was talking with the sharks about expanding their production and lowering the cost to make. That's how you scale, right? You either lower the cost to make your product or you expand your audience. And it sounds like they're trying to pay them even less now. It doesn't seem from the promotional videos that they published as though the pearlettes are upset about the wage that they're making. Do you think that they didn't debrief the house, these elderly people, and they were like, oh, you know, you should say these things, smile, grandma, or you don't get more creamed corn? Like, come on. <laughs> the thing that Sarah Oliver would do that would be brilliant would be to offer a profit sharing program yes. with yes. employees. Like, Absolutely. That would actually I be agree. brilliant to say like, hey, look, the more you produce, the more you earn into the profit sharing program. Paying on a per unit basis, I think makes a lot more sense to be more of a fit in with your lifestyle business. The question is just like, is $18 per bag enough to compensate those people? I don't know. To John's point, if they offered some kind of like equity ownership, mm -hmm. so maybe it's like you can have like a Sarah Oliver franchise See, I like that. at your yeah. retirement yeah. That's home. That's right. Mm -hmm. I do think if they fix the model, the concept is still there. Yeah. I think if you look at their business practices, it borders on, at best, unsavory business practice. At worst, it's vaguely exploitative to me. And maybe fast fashion was the bad example, but like Avon and thinking about like other things in which you have like a middle man person who's like, okay, I want more flexibility. I want more ownership. You mean like multi-level marketing schemes, Ariel? I didn't want to use that word. Like literally MLMs. Is that the better example, I was Ariel? Say the crunchy mom jobs, but I didn't want to <laughs> go into MLMs. But yes. So you think giving our seniors MLMs <laughs> is a superior business model? No, but if we're in a world where MLMs are accepted and if people in senior homes are looking to do something with their time that they love to do and feel a sense of fulfillment, then who are we to... To ethically protect our elders? <laughs> I would feel much worse if this was a multi-level marketing scheme, actually. I would be like, oh my gosh, like you're totally taking advantage. Ultimately, though, three of our sharks were very bought in by this story. So Lori, Robert, and Kevin ended up offering 250K for 30% in Kevin's word because this isn't a charity tank, so of course they're going to take some of that equity. But ultimately, they ended up sealing the deal with our founder. And Sarah Oliver, for all I had opinions on her business, walked away with a Shark Tank deal. But I'm not done. I see that smile on your face, Jory. What happened? So <laughs> let me tell you. After airing on Shark Tank, their website gained so much traction that it actually crashed. Sales were absolutely through the roof. But let me tell you what actually happened. This episode aired in 2015. The company was forcibly shut down in 2017 due to the U.S. Department of Labor. <gasps> in fact, oh because they were paying the pearlettes so little, they were indeed making far less than minimum oh. wage, and they were shut down due to illegal business practices. Oh, no! So the very oh concerns gosh. that were positioned about this workforce were indeed a violation of labor laws, <laughs> and so they were shut down. Jory, you're basically saying you were right. I'm just saying <laughs> the profit-sharing was 
was a great idea. Yeah. yeah. You needed to find another way to pay them more yeah. because mm-hmm. 18 bucks a handbag for hours of labor is just not also, enough. Also, for a vulnerable population, like, yeah. it's just not going to fly. That's going to get people looking into it. So, okay. We have three businesses. Audio, Acton, and Sarah Oliver handbags. But one golden bite can be given. So who is winning today's golden bite? Let's start with you, John. The origin of the golden bite (laughs) came from Shark Tank, where Lori used to give out a golden ticket once a season to the perfect business. She wouldn't negotiate. She would just give her golden ticket away. We took that idea and we applied it here on Another Bite podcast, and we call it the Golden Bite. And that is the origin story of the Golden Bite. And that is why my Golden Bite this week goes to audio. (laughs) That was brilliant. There has to be a full episode where you just do that Boston accent the whole time. Uh, It's got to be one of the worst Boston accents that's ever been done in the history of the (laughs) That's what makes it good, though. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so audio gets your uh, Golden Bite. Awesome. Ariel, who gets your Golden Bite this week? You know, I wanted Sarah Oliver, if only the practices were, you know, <laughs> fair and But and if better. it was profit sharing, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I'll go with audio, too. I mean, I think it's always helpful to have a little tour guide when you're exploring places, even if you have to spend $36 a year for it. I think for me, Acton kind of wins. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because I was against the product initially, but seeing a business completely pivot and still maintain, especially True. in like hard economic conditions, not so much for its pitch or its product, but what it did after Shark Tank, I think is pretty impressive. So Acton, I think for me, wins the golden bite. What a plethora of nostalgic products. I love that. Look at us. <laughs> Today's episode was written and produced by my favorite human being, Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero and editing from Robert Hartwig. Have you subscribed to the show yet? I mean, of course you have. You wouldn't listen all the way through like this and not be subscribed already, right? Right? Yeah, I knew you would be because you're my favorite subscriber. Okay, that does it for me. See you next week in the tank for another bite.